This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. In today's episode, I spoke with Dr. Kenneth Kosick, a neuroscientist and neurologist at the University of California in Santa Barbara. The basic question that Dr. Kosick has focused his work on is to understand what are the cellular and molecular mechanisms that regulate neuroplasticity, which is the remarkable feature that connections between neurons in the brain are able to dynamically change throughout our life. How exactly does the brain control this plasticity? Within this larger question, Dr. Kosick has contributed significantly to a variety of topics, such as the involvement of molecules known as microRNAs, which are small, non-coding pieces of RNA that help regulate gene expression. He has also helped advance our understanding about some of the basic molecular processes that underlie neurodegenerative diseases, particularly Alzheimer's disease. In the course of the interview, I was able to learn about some of the fascinating research avenues that Dr. Kosick studies, and about how a background in the humanities can be a terrific skill set for becoming a successful scientist. I started off by asking if there was a common thread that tied together the different camps of his research. So I suppose if um, we had to say there was some sort of common theme for a lot of the stuff that I do, um, <laughs> I had to put it all into one single word. That word would have to be plasticity. Okay. That's and, a good word. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, of course, plasticity, as you know, is uh, how the brain changes and adapts and does all the things it does must involve uh, plasticity. And there's so many ways that you can look at plasticity. You can look at it by uh, comparing how different species work. You can look at it from diseases like Alzheimer's in which plasticity is impaired. And you can look at it from development, how we acquire plasticity in the brain. There's It's, it's such an interesting topic, which has so many entry doors that I find it very appealing. There's mm-hmm. lots of ways in. Did you start at one area and then others opened up? Can you take us through some of your research history and kind of the ways in which you studied it? So my approach has been through the medical side because I trained as an MD and then I did specialty training as a neurologist. So I came to research um, thinking mostly about medical problems and being interested in questions around plasticity and medicine, it was very natural to start to think about neurodegeneration and where there's an impairment of that uh, aspect of brain function. So I I got into this uh, pretty much from the realm of pathology and spent a long time uh, doing that until I gradually realized that there were so many fundamental questions that are relevant to disease that we just don't have a clue about. And that in some ways, as fascinating as it is to study disease, without having a real basis in place for what's going on in the brain about understanding synapses, you really need that to get the infrastructure in place to understand the disease. And the example of this, which is absolutely clear, is is that we would never understand cancer to the level that we do today if we did not have the underpinnings of genomics. So what we need for the underpinnings of problems like Alzheimer's is fundamental knowledge about the brain, like brain circuitry, how synapses really work. All of these issues are essential to going the next step in Alzheimer's, which right now is being treated, in my opinion, very superficially. 
was research something that uh, was a initial interest, or was did you do a sort of a dual MD PhD thing, or did you take a MD route yeah. and then uh, decide to like go into research as well? Yeah, I completely forgot to do my PhD, <laughs> and um, I uh, went the MD route, and I think uh, as I found medicine absolutely fascinating to learn, but actually much less interesting to practice. I think the example I'd like to give is is that you don't really want to go to a creative doctor. You'd <laughs> rather go to a doctor who's seen exactly what you have thousands of times before, has done exactly what he or she should do to help you, and just do it. And mm -hmm. you then walk out of the office and you're cured. You don't want to be experimented on. And that's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, exactly the opposite of what I like to do, which is experiment and ask new questions and explore. So medicine is very gratifying, and I love medicine, but its daily practice takes a very special kind of person to do it. I'm not sure if I'm that person. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad that you decided to do some research to it. <laughs> so I decided to go into um, research, and I decided very late in my career to go into research. I was already through medical school with um, rather flagrant disinterest in research. My background actually is in um, English literature, is where I was oh, trained right. as an undergrad and did a master's degree and really was very interested in that. And, and another thing I often advise students is that I think whether if you're going into science, either you know as a PhD or almost anybody in science, I think you can't get any better training than actually in the humanities because if you learn a lot of science as an undergrad, by the time you're doing graduate work, it's all going to be different. But if you learn the basic skills of writing, it's going to serve you forever. And boy, you have to do a lot of writing <laughs> when you're doing science. But there's actually another more profound reason why the humanities is a very good background for scientists. And that is, scientists often come away with the impression that the answers to questions are either black or white right or wrong, yes or no. And that's not how nature works. It's often in between. Something that can be true can also be false at the same time. And uh, people in the humanities understand that very well. You have a book or a movie, and the guy that is, also, is the hero is also the villain. People in humanities are more comfortable with paradoxes and contradictions, and that's less true in science. So I think uh, that's, that's another reason why we should introduce more of humanities into the science curriculum so we can appreciate those subtleties. This came home to me very, very clearly because as I did start to become more and more involved in science, one of the first things I worked on was the problem of the neurofibrillary tangle of Alzheimer's disease. This is this structure that collects in neurons and is a hallmark pathology for the disease. Mm -hmm. And we were one of several groups that discovered that the neurofibrillary tangle is made up of a protein called TAU, T-A-U. On the one hand, this protein, when it's normal in your body, we all have that protein, is a very soluble protein. But as soon as it becomes abnormal, it becomes incredibly insoluble. So the same protein has two opposite properties. And this sort of perplexed people for quite a while. And... Uh, and yet I think uh, we can understand these things better if we can also understand that nature is full of things that look like contradictions, but they're not.
you know, it's, it's, um, so I took this sort of like very delayed course into research in which I went through medical school, went through neurology residency, and at the end of residency is when what opened up to me was I sort of saw out there that the next step would be to get a real job, which <laughs> was a little bit uh, scary. So I, you know, decided, okay, my next step in life will be a postdoc and start to do some research. And uh, since I did not have a PhD, no one would take me as a postdoc. I see. It's, it's just, I could not even buy bet. I didn't know how to make a buffer or anything. <laughs> I went around, and the uh, person who I did my postdoc with was Dennis Selko. I asked him if I could go to his lab. And this was where? This, I was at the time, I was at Tufts. I was finishing my neurology residency, and he was at Harvard. And I said, could I come to your lab? And he said, no. <laughs> and... Uh, I, you know, I really, I thought his work was very interesting. So uh, I really, I just, I begged him and begged him. I said, you know, I really, it's what I want to do in life and, you know, all the things. Finally, he said, okay, you can come to the lab on one condition. You have to get a little grant to pay your own salary, to pay your money, to pay, pay yourself. Yeah. So I wrote a little grant to the uh, Huntington's Disease Association, which at the time was um, run by Nancy Wexler. I was so shocked when I got that grant, and it was for very little money, much less than I was getting as a neurology resident, mm -hmm. but it was my ticket into this lab, <laughs> and that just now, uh, I became like a, a kid in a toy store. <laughs> Every day was to come in and just really, it felt like play. It was really, it was just great fun, and that's what launched things. I've noticed that that from the people we've talked to so far, that continual enjoyment and the that seems to be a trait of that scientists I think really need to foster. And I'm wondering if the best bet from what you just said would be to do a humanities undergraduate and then be in the lab at least to learn how to pipette. And <laughs> yeah, that's right. That might be really the best. I think that would be uh, would be excellent. You know, if you. Uh, I, I for a long time I was on the uh, admission committee at uh, Harvard Med School and. Um, if you, we would always, to someone, if we wanted to admit someone, we wanted to see if they weren't just thinking about being a doctor because they had some illusion about what being a doctor might like. We wanted to know if they really knew what it was like to be a doctor and still wanted to be a doctor. Yeah. And we should do the same thing perhaps with PhDs. They should realize that science is tedious, that you have, it's long hours, and that unless you really know what it's like to struggle and have your papers rejected and all of this stuff, you really maybe should think twice about that career unless you really, really know know about it. I've, I've noticed the being okay with being wrong 99% of the time, and yeah. that's okay. Like As long as there's, you kind of have to be in the fly in the face of failure all the time. All the time. And, but then those moments when suddenly you, you think you're onto something can it be... makes it all worth it. Exactly. And that's, I think that's like the trait that I've noticed so many people have, uh, have identified. That's um, one trait. The, I think another trait is yeah. that you have to be um, uh, somewhat comfortable with insecurity. Mm. Uh, if you want to really, uh, if you want a job in which you know you're going to be able to pay your mortgage and do everything that a lot of people want to do, maybe you can do that in science, but there's no guarantees you will do it. So um, I think that this kind of a people that um, in which security is the most important thing may not find science a necessarily best career for them. Mm -hmm. So you did this first. Uh 
uh, foray into research was a postdoc, and it was studying the tau tangles and That was my first project, was the tangles of Alzheimer's disease, yes. And then where did you go from there? Well, I did that for a long time. I basically um, did that throughout my postdoc, and I kept, I, I, I did hammer away at the problem, was very interested in it, but I kept finding that... Um, there were basic questions that would distract me. Were they unanswered or were they? They were unanswered questions, you know, like tau shows up in the neurofibrillary tangle. And uh, I got really curious about what tau was doing under normal conditions. You know, you, another question that one could ask was, what's it doing in the disease that's sort of messing up the brain? But I got very distracted by these questions about what its normal function was. And it turned out that we then did a series of papers in which um, we looked at the role of tau in the formation of an axon and how it organizes microtubules and a lot of the basic biology, how it undergoes splicing. All of that was work that we did early on that certainly has relevance to Alzheimer's disease, but was sort of laying the groundwork for the basic science of tau biology. So at the time, was it most the people had been focusing on the when it goes wrong, but the just well, what it does in a normal function was unknown? at the time it was when tau was just discovered. I see. So there were two branches you could take, and one of them was to try to understand what's happening when it goes wrong, which is a very important, interesting question that I'm very interested in. But I ended up putting a lot more of my effort into what is its normal function and how does it undergo splicing and all that kind of work. What made you go down that route, was it? Um, it somehow, I think some people, especially if you come from a medical background, uh, people will begin to investigate a disease because they have a mission in life of wanting to cure that disease. And I think that's a, a very noble mission. But it wasn't the most driving question for me. I mean, I, I, just, I, I would just, I would, I would love to be able to contribute to curing Alzheimer's, uh, and I've worked on that. But if at the end of the day, what I would say really, really drives what I'm doing is not curing a disease. It's curiosity about how the brain works. I like that fundamental sort of, if that's the goal, it's a, like you said, very noble, but at the same time, I think sometimes that puts a focus purely on that and then the simple questions might not be answered. Right. I very much agree with that. Yeah. Let's go to some of the, uh, I, I, I was really interested in seeing that, that you study the system from so many different ways. It sounds like from this, at that point, it was still a very molecular and cell biology kind of way at which you were studying the disease. At what point did you sort of branch out and come at it from, from many different ways? Yeah. Well, we've always, uh, my lab has always been very oriented towards cell molecular biology. So, uh, but of course there are many perspectives to take on that and mm -hmm. they're changing all the time. You know, as, uh, as we began to uh, be able to sequence genomes and uh, be able to get more and more uh, genetic information, my lab also shifted a little bit toward doing some more genetic work. Another feature, perhaps, of, I think, being a, a scientist is, is that you just always have to be current with uh, technology. It's really technology that drives science. And so, in some ways, we're not doing things that are radically different than what we did originally. It's just that there are new tools to do them. Do you draw inspiration then from 
being current in the new kinds of technology? Or are there other areas that you also draw inspiration for of where to take your, you know, ask the questions that you want to ask? Yeah. No, well, the technologies are very driving. I think all the technologies of, we were fortunate that when deep, sequ- deep sequencing came along, we were able to uh, obtain a deep sequencer and do all of that sequencing right in the lab as um, the whole bioinformatic uh, analyses became more important. Um, I was able to incorporate a lot of that into our lab program, and to me, that's become an absolutely critical element. In fact, I, I, I now believe that the biologist of the future is going to have to be equally well-trained in informatics as in wet lab work, and uh, I am very much striving to create a lab where people that come out of the lab are comfortable doing either one. And we have people in my lab who have finished that program and are in the lab now that um, easily cross over between the two. They do experiments and they go to the computer and they model it and they really are able to do all of this work uh, together. To me, that is the way a training program for the future biologist should operate. What's the, what are some of the advantages that being well-versed in bioinformatics, what are things that that will allow you to do that a simple experimentalist couldn't do? Uh, I think every research project begins with bioinformatics. You shouldn't jump right into an experiment. You have to, you say you get interested in a gene, you get interested in some phenomena uh, that's going on in a cell. You have to first go into the database and look at to what extent that gene is conserved, where are the conserved features, um, what is uh, its genomic organization, what else is in that locus, uh, what uh, mutations have occurred in that disease that have given rise to different phenotypes. You have to go in and look at signaling databases or you know, every kind of database you can imagine so that you really have tackled the existing knowledge before you even pick, do one experiment. It's, it's really literally the starting point. Mm-hmm. And then once you do some experiments, you really need to then to go to the next stage, which is to understand how to take data and do the necessary analyses. And that involves more than bioinformatics. It involves a very sophisticated, shouldn't say very, uh, somewhat <laughs> sophisticated view about statistics. With, uh, because when I say bioinformatics, I really should say computation. It's really the biologists have to be comfortable with informatics as well as statistics to really do their job. And with those, with that information, that allows you then, does that, you're saying, like, absolutely critical for analyzing it and making any conclusions? You know, I think the days of sort of just trying to study your favorite gene by knocking it out and overexpressing it and see what happens are over. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really, um, to look at biology, which is very hierarchical and network-driven, as uh, being to get insights from simply uh, taking out one thing and focusing on it is really not going to work. So unless you have some sort of more comprehensive view of a system in general, uh, I think we're going to be misled. Yeah, I saw you wrote a letter recently in Nature kind of, I think, sort of addressing that concern. And it seemed like you you were focusing in that letter on Alzheimer's, but would you prescribe that to... Uh, all fields of biology, but particularly Alzheimer's research. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm reluctant to completely generalize because you know we there's mm-hmm. people that we don't want to lose that you know have you know very type more classical interests. Mm-hmm. But I do think that uh, unless you are sort of cognizant of how um, so many facets of biology 
are interlocking with other facets, you're just not going to really be able to make a story. And that's what it's all about. It's really about telling a story. That's where we get back to literature. What is science? Science is really telling a story. It's really a metaphor for stuff that we can't see. Again, you don't, you don't see like a signaling pathway. We don't see any of that stuff. We don't see genes, but we have these stories that we tell about biology because all the data adds up to something consistent that allows us to make an inference. And the data like on its own can is sometimes maybe not convincing or not enough. We need still a human element to put a story to it use, using language to then sort of mo- motivate us to you know, move along and study, it's, understand it. It's very much it's another bit of advice which I give students is, is that, of course, uh, you know, when you're out there on your job talk, what I think a committee wants to hear, in addition to saying, okay, you've published some great papers and you have the ability to get grants and you have these great letters of recommendations, but when you give your chalk talk or your job talk, you're really telling a story. And that story is built on data. It has to be. That's what science mm-hmm. is all about. But it also has to show that you are imaginative about your data and that you're creative and that you can actually say, I'm taking a collection of facts and making them into an interesting rendition of the way a cell works or a disease unfolds. Mm-hmm. I saw, too, that would you be able to tell us a little bit about this center that I think it's a cottage brain fitness center? Yeah, yeah. this is something, um, so this is my other hat. This is my hat uh, as a clinical neurologist Mm -hmm. in which I, uh, if we're going to make an impact on Alzheimer's and we don't have any treatment for Alzheimer's right now, if we're going to make an impact, the one thing that we can do right now today is to reduce people's risk for the disease. And while we don't have a treatment, we do know a lot of risk factors. And they're very easy to enumerate. They're really very easy. Most people already know them. They're things like, uh, they're medical things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, uh, glucose levels out of control, uh, sedentary lifestyle, poor diet, maybe lack of cognitive stimulation, high stress. One of them on the list, believe it or not, is um, sort of lack of friends. Friends actually is very good for the brain, having friends, social activity. I have no friends. So yeah, so you're in trouble. You're going to have to go find yeah. <laughs> So we know what these risk factors are. So the idea was, can we create a center for people that are healthy but at risk to lower their risk? Mm-hmm. And that's what, and that's what we, we had done in this uh, center. And how long has that been running? It was running for a while, but it's not running right now. It was based in a hospital in Santa Barbara called Cottage Hospital that pulled out, and uh, we are looking for a new home. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, that's an awesome idea, though, to take. You know, like you said, we don't have an immediate cure, treat, but we do know all these factors. So what can we do to? To reduce risk is a very important uh, piece. You could really have a major impact, I think, on the incidence of Alzheimer's. If you could just delay the onset by five years, it would literally save billions of dollars because the disease is so expensive. Do you know what the estimate of? Well, the disease is now costing, you know, over $200 billion a year. Wow. It's, it's staggering numbers. Mm-hmm. And by pushing it back, even by five years, and the fact that it's already affecting people that are old, this concept of what's called competing mortality, that is that if you push back the age of onset, it's likely that there will be other reasons why someone may die, and we will really have uh, much less of an Alzheimer burden. Mm-hmm. 
what's the link between microRNAs and Alzheimer's disease just so we can connect yeah. these last things. But then there's a whole, that's a whole unique story too about just brain development. And yeah. uh, there is, um, there's no strong link yet between microRNAs and Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. There is a paper that recently came up, came out about um, uh, some microRNAs that showed up in the cerebrospinal fluid that may help in diagnosing Alzheimer's, but there's no actual causative link that's been identified. The only relationship at this point is, is that clearly microRNAs have some role at the synapse in regulating local translation. Uh, synaptic function is impaired in Alzheimer's, and that may be a way into the disease, but I think that's still an area that's very unknown. Mm -hmm. But in the so in the normal function though of the just brain development, these microRNAs are important in causing just lots of regulation on on growth and things like that. Could you tell us a little bit about what you what you know at this point and what you're working on? Yeah, well, microRNAs are really important for these moments when a cell changes its identity. So uh, you start out with a fertilized egg that divides and divides, and that uh, those cells uh, are very similar to each other in a blastula, but then um, differentiation begins. There's gastrulation, and you have the three germ layers, and then beyond that, they be the differentiate into, you know, muscle, nerve, all the different parts. So development involves cells changing their identities, and uh, every time a cell changes its identity, a microRNA, my, many microRNAs are involved. So they become readouts for cell identity. Even when cells, so when they acquire these new identities during differentiation, microRNAs have a role. Uh, when they lose their identity in cancer, microRNAs also have a role. They, uh, microRNAs, are, I think, are important in sort of maintaining the homeostasis or the keeping a cell in a certain type of uh, state as a certain identity. I mean, why you have a cell that's um, a brain cell, why doesn't it just slip a little bit and become sort of not quite a brain cell? Are there intermediate states between, say, being a neuron and a glial cell? How do identities of cells form discrete boundaries? And um, I think microRNAs have a role there in doing that. Does their arrival cause these differentiations, or is, is, it, uh, is it known that the basically, it, like you said, in a dividing blastocyst, the, suddenly the arrival of these new microRNAs in cells, is that then the driving force to, to sort of lead them on it's their lineage? That's a very lineage? good question, yeah. So they probably don't cause these, this is actually a paradox in the field of microRNAs, they probably don't cause these changes in differentiation. Um, you know, one thing that we learned um, in um, the fact that we now know how to reprogram cells, that we can use these uh, four Yamanaka factors uh, that are transcription factors to change a cell's identity from a fibroblast to a stem cell. And the one thing that we've learned that we sort of suspected for a long time but has been unequivocally proven by that experiment and would make that experiment well worth a Nobel Prize even if nothing else came from stem cells is the fact that the really big guns 
driving this whole thing, and that is changes in cell identity are transcription factors. But those are blunt instruments. And to actually get the fine regulation that maintains a cell identity precisely and that allows a cell to be subject to all the whims of the environment while maintaining its identity, I think that's the job of a microRNA. You talked about then providing a role potentially for explaining maybe how, for instance, a human or primate brain can can like over you know uh, proliferate at such a rate that uh, is unique to to uh, animals with large cortices. And um, is this is that something you would you would uh, agree with? Yeah, I mean, I think you can take uh, these basic pathways and mechanisms of things like mitosis and different aspects of cell function, and by tuning them, regulating them in different ways, you can actually make new things, like uh, a new germinal zone in the developing cortex of a primate. You know, we, between, uh, if you go through the entire animal kingdom, uh, from sponges to humans, uh, the number of coding genes has not changed very much. Uh, but, of course, what has changed is the non-coding part of the genome, which has been increasing a lot. The non-coding part of the genome is creating the wiring. It's the circuitry. It's how the genes are connected to each other in regulatory pathways with regard to their levels of expression and the timing of their expression. And all of that comes from this part of the genome that has grown with organismal complexity. What's amazing about that is, is that at the origins of the animal kingdom, there was sort of latent in that gene set the capacity to make humans. I mean, that is really a remarkable thing because, as I say, the genes aren't changing that much. You take a set of genes. Now, of course, new genes were invented. I, I'm super simplifying this. But the core elements were already there 650 million years ago to just rewire and then come up with Shakespeare. Well, I, that's thank you so much for speaking with us. Of course, yeah, absolutely. No, it's a good, good, good chat. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.